Governor Andrew Cuomo is out after Me Too finally caught up to him and his creepy ways. His friends in the media and the Time's Up campaign couldn't cover for him forever. We're going to get into sexual harassment, double standards, and power dynamics. And we're going to start by revisiting the career takedown of seven-time Grammy nominee Ryan Adams. He was the subject of a profile in LA Magazine just this past month. And the first bit of media coverage that Adams has received since 2019, when the New York Times did a hit on him that halted his career during the peak of fervor around Me Too allegations. We'll dive deep into that story, Cuomo's downfall, and how the coverage of these cases are evolving. And by we, I mean Liz Wolf of Reason Magazine in the house today, uh, plus journalist Katie Herzog, co-host of Blocked and Reported, the essential podcast for online drama and explainers on cancel culture. Nice to have you both here. And I'm Stephen Kent, and this is Right Now. Katie, I want to start by saying that Blocked and Reported has elbowed its way straight to the top of my podcast feed and really become kind of like my number one go-to for just pure enjoyment. Um, Granted, you're covering really weighty subjects a lot of the time, but you and your co-host Jesse make internet drama highly digestible and break it all down in incredible detail, Um, not to mention it's all very cathartic. I just wanted to ask you to get started. What do you think explains the success of Blocked and Reported? Uh, I think part of it is that people need a distraction from really important things. And so uh, (laughs) talking about internet drama is it's a it's a break from real news. And we do cover some real news. But most of what we're talking about is at some level not that important. Yeah, I, mean, I, I think you're, I think you're probably being overly humble, starting. though, like because it's it's niche. It's very niche online kind of yeah. pile on stories. But I do think you're being humble in that a lot of these stories have ripple effects that you talk about throughout your show, like where you you sort of seeing like a, a change in what is acceptable in the scientific community. How is that playing out in some sort of like cancel mob on Twitter? But it all comes from a very important place. Sure. And a lot of what we do is media criticism. I think at heart, that's what the show is. And, um, and, it, and you know, it, Jesse and I are both sort of disgruntled reporters. We've really lost faith in, in media and in much of mainstream media, especially liberal media, even though both of us are liberals. And so I think a lot of people also fall into that category where they feel like the news that they're getting isn't isn't it's not well produced it's biased and the bias is obvious um and that and that that makes coverage uh un i don't know untruthful in some ways and so people people they want to go someplace where um they're uh they feel like they're getting a different side of the story have you gotten much pushback from the journalists that you're criticizing like do you ever get you know your inbox flooded with dms of spurned and angry mainstream media journalists who are just like screw you guys no and i think part of that is that people don't listen hate listen to podcasts like if jesse (laughs) and i were writing these things they don't they really don't i mean when uh when i was writing when my work was primarily on text i would get lots of angry dms or lots of angry messages maybe not dms as much because criticism tends to be public and support tends to be private. Um, but that really, with a couple of exceptions, we really haven't uh, gotten sort of the flood of hate that we expected when we started the show, because it takes an effort to listen to a podcast that 
you hate. I don't, li- I don't hate listening to podcasts. <laughs> I hate read articles, but I don't hate listening to podcasts. <laughs> no, I, I think that that is well put and accurate. I do not hate consume any podcasts. You see, I do. I must be a really oh like God. vindictive or like self-hating, like glutton for punishment. But I was hate listening to some podcasts about the Ryan Adams kerfuffle. Like literally last night as I was cooking dinner. So I guess I just need to reform my ways. Well, that's all in the name <laughs> of research. So I, I guess I want to, in the spirit of Blocked and Reported, I want to put some very sort of niche drama in front of the two of you um, that has been playing out over the past couple of years. Uh, are y'all familiar with Ryan Adams? Not Brian. <laughs> Ryan Adams. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty familiar. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So we, we all agree. Yeah. Cause he's, he's kind of been out there for, for 20 years, his big debut album, uh, soul as a solo artist was heartbreaker. He comes from 1990s, um, Americana and kind of alt country he had this big successful band in North Carolina called whiskey town that was popular in the Raleigh area. Um, but what I'm going to do, and this, I guess in this, again, the spirit of blocked and reported in media criticism is I want to recap for both of you the story that came out in 2019 from the New York Times. It's a piece by Joe Coscarelli and Melina Rizek, uh, and it basically ties together during the peak of the Me Too fervor around allegations and sort of assessing power dynamics in music, entertainment, and politics, um, an attack on Ryan Adams' uh, reputation, which it must be said, has always been a very um, messy reputation to begin with. So the piece by Joe and Milena, they tie together accusations from around the music industry that Adams had a string of romances, flings with young female musicians, most notably um, the popular rising star, big star at this point, Phoebe Bridgers. Um, He offered recording and collaboration and promises of success for a string of sort of young musicians in their early 20s. And almost in every case, these these relationships, these mentorships, these offerings for recording time, they turned sexual very quickly in some cases. And then when things soured with those people, he would harass, gaslight, freeze them out, try to make them feel like they were the ones who caused all the problems in the first place. The second prong of this story is that Ryan had also done this to his very famous wife, Mandy Moore, the pop star from from the 90s and early 2000s, who he married in 2009. And Mandy Moore is now alleged that he maliciously smothered her career in its prime. She had publicly been quite graceful with Ryan when their marriage fell apart um, several years later, around 2015, 2016. This began all of this um, and sort of was put into the New York Times story as sort of a a continued thread. He did this to his wife. He's done this to young girls in the industry. Um, It must be noted that she didn't say anything about all of this until the New York Times came to her with the allegations about younger artists and let her know that he had been unfaithful throughout the marriage. Maybe she had an inkling of suspicion, but she was not aware previously that he had had all these dalliances on the side. And then the third element of this story, which was the most damaging by far, was that Adams had been engaging in a sexual text phone relationship with an underage fan identified only as Ava. And during the final years of his marriage to Moore was when this was all going on. Now, this all began when Ava was 14, 15 years old, and she was misleading Adams throughout the entirety of their relationship about her age, sort of assuring him that he was 18, and then never being able to provide proof. 
And it seems quite clear throughout that, that arc of the story that Adams was playing with fire, that he kind of knew that there was something amiss here and continued forward anyways. The sense you get is this lack of self-control from that, of like he was so tempted by that that even though, you know, his his judgment really kind of said, eh, this is probably, he had some intuition that said this is a bad freaking idea. There was something about the allure of his relationship with her and maybe how illicit it was that kept him continuing down that road. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that that has to be considered as an element of it. Um, you know, I don't want to play um, what's the armchair guy, armchair mm-hmm. guy psychiatrist about anybody that I don't exactly. know. But there's an element of like just living right on the edge with something you know you're not supposed to do for a a musician who is in a a bad spot in his marriage. Clearly, has dealt with addiction and all sorts of different problems, and I think he just have a, a self destructive streak, which plays into that. Um, I do want to just cap off before we dive into those details, that after the New York Times piece laid out all of these three things, kind of weaving them all together, the FBI reportedly launched uh, an investigation into Adams, going through all of the text message, all of the emails, all the different correspondences. And after the FBI investigation was reported on in the fall of 2019, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, they, they opened it and then they swiftly closed it within a year. And that element of it was what led to him losing uh, sponsorships for all of his gear, lost his record distribution deals with Blue Note, a subsidiary of Capital, lost all of his tour dates, and pretty much all of his friends and personal connections. So kind of all of it goes out the window pretty much when the FBI thing kind of sealed the deal of like, all right, this guy's really, really toxic. Um, so I think maybe we start there with the the fact that the story sort of ties together misconduct and gaslighting behavior, but the clearly the most damaging thing is, is dealing with an underage person online, right? Yeah. I mean, the thing that's really interesting about Ryan Adams, and we saw this a little bit with Jesse Lacey of Brand New, who I think you're somewhat familiar with, Stephen. Um, you know, Adams was somebody who really was into the fan engagement side of things, interacting with his fans online, developing relationships with them. Every person who's sort of in the spotlight or who is in the sort of creative realm has some amount, it makes some decision about the level of engagement that they want to have and how personal they want it to be with their fans, um, either communicating just through press people or sometimes reaching out to some people, really, you know, sending handwritten. I know, you know, my friend who's a musician um, sent I think handwritten uh, copies of her newest album, like letters to accompany that Mm -hmm. as it was released to, you know, a hundred loyal fans. So every artist makes these decisions. And Adams had long been somebody who decided to go for a high degree of engagement. Clearly that totally burned him. Um, And and I, I sort of see this as an indictment of groupieism. The sense that I got from these times reporters is that there's this long tradition of having groupies in this industry. uh, And, it's sometimes difficult to figure out the the boundary between that. I'm not sure I agree, but I want I want to kick it to Katie here, and then we can kind of unpack that that claim about groupieism. Katie, <laughs> you were kind of like getting familiar with this entire story. What was your takeaway, particularly with the angle about where the underage fan and the FBI investigation came into it? 
Well, first of all, I'm curious about why the FBI is getting involved in this. This this does not seem like the type of thing that uh, that our national security um, apparatus should should really be investigating. And from from what I can tell from the reporting, what the FBI found was basically nothing. And that the girl later said that she had told Ryan Adams continually that she was 18. I'm not sure where she is or what the age of consent is where she was. Is it yeah. a bad idea for right. him to? Yeah. And, oh, and so like, that's kind of one of the things is like the age of consent, consent laws and, and engaging in illicit communications with minors are, are completely two different things because age of consent applies to physical contact. And this whereas, had no physical right, component right, yeah. to it. This was all right. cross state borders, online digital contact. Yeah, which you should, you should not and cannot do. It is in fact illegal, but there has to be that thread of, of knowing exactly yeah. what you are doing. Right. And I, I would right. I would challenge the the whether or not the FBI should be doing this. They have an entire wing of the FBI that's dedicated to protecting minors like from child porn from predators. Right. Um, and sure. there was an exchange of illicit photos and all sorts of stuff throughout the chain of this communication. But it was done under the guise of this person being eighteen, uh, even if it seemed in the right. communications that he was a little doubtful that that was true. Right. So in my in my thinking, she, you know, she admitted that she had misled him about her age. Should he be held responsible for being duped for the rest of his life? My feeling about about these cases in general are, you know, I believe I'm someone who believes in in rehabilitation. And I believe that if you if you make a mistake, even if it's not a mistake, if you commit a crime and you, for instance, kill someone and you go to jail and you serve out your sentence, you should be allowed to reenter society. And a lot of these cases, of course, are not being litigated in the courts. They're being litigated in sort of the court of public opinion where there's no statute of limitations and there's no and, and when fame is involved, it's much more complicated. But if I, I don't know, it seems to me that should should this man be losing his entire career, his entire life over being duped by, a, you know, a, a teen fan? And the, does the punishment fit the crime? This to me seems a little bit um a little bit draconian. That said, right, I'm from North Carolina. I know people who played in Whiskey Town as old band. Ryan Adams has a reputation for being a um, a friend of mine was a, a, a teenage musician who loaned Ryan Adams in the early days before he was famous her guitar for a show, and he smashed her guitar that she'd saved up her babysitting money for on stage. He seems like mm. an asshole, but there's a difference <laughs> between being an asshole and being a predator. Well, yeah. so I'm curious. I So I totally agree with you. I think we're of the same mind on whether the punishment fits the crime. But do you actually think he was duped and does it matter? Like, it's the sense that I get through reading these these text exchange. I mean, at one point he asked her to produce an ID to prove that she's 18, but to do it in the sexiest way possible, LOL. Because naturally everybody always ends everything, you know, flirty and texty with like, LOL. But like, do you actually, the, when reading the exchanges, I got the sense that he was technically... I, I, his lawyer's defense is fine. He never knew. She never communicated that she was under 18. But do you actually think he was hoodwinked or duped? Or do you think he kind of like understood what was going on here? Mm-hmm. I have no idea. I, yeah, I, it's, it's hard to it's say. Just, I think impossible to speculate and, on his And I think that's the point. State. And how, how old was yeah. she actually? Uh, so at the time the communications began, she was approaching 15. Um, at this point, she is uh, approaching approaching twenty. I think um, it was during the the sexual and nudity exchanging the, the the time when they were exchanging images. I think she was fifteen. Yeah, that's correct. Yeah. And and part of the thing here, and I think I think Katie's like when you say that like we shouldn't speculate. I think that's actually kind of the entire point. Yeah, and that's part of the thing about the entirety of this story, which 
I find to be unsavory. There's a lot of speculation throughout uh, the New York Times piece that came out in 2019, but they're able to tie threads together. They're able to, to overlap different elements. You know, the idea of sort of like, um, gaslighting of people who he's in relationships with, then throwing them aside because, you know, I guess just a really bad person to be in a relationship with. I suppose that's the element of 20 years of music about heartbreak and bad relationships. You should know this about the guy that you don't want to actually be in a relationship with him. Atop all of that, then sort of trying to make a point about power dynamics. Um, Joe and Melena at, at the New York Times have been explicit that this is all sort of about litigating power dynamics, uh, privilege, and, and the way that society should work, which is dismantling systems. They talk about that throughout all the coverage of this event that this is all about a system that allows for an older musician to prey on younger people um, and maintain his position as sort of like the gatekeeper into the industry. Um, you know, the power dynamic is interesting, and it's obviously not a new one, but I think that oftentimes we forget that there's an attraction to power. I'm I'm sort of generalizing here, but it's not as though these people didn't know uh, specifically Phoebe Bridgers when he was he was already famous, and Mandy Moore as well uh, when he entered into these relationships with them. In some ways, it's hard for me not to see these exchanges as somewhat transactional, and they were getting something out of it as well. Um, and I do think women are, you know, have just as much autonomy as anybody else, just as much autonomy as men, and and should be able to uh, to make their own decisions and to go into these uh, into these relationships with open eyes and sort of, I don't know. Take responsibility for for their own actions. Yeah, I want to well. I want to put a pin in in that point because I, I think that's really important for the the next plank of the story, which is the Mandy Moore part of the story. Um, to kind of close out the loop a little bit on on the FBI part of it, you know, an FBI investigation reports of that being opened is incredibly damaging. Um, there was there was a moment after the New York Times story dropped where there was an eerie quiet where everybody was kind of waiting, like, are you going to drop your deal with him first? <laughs> because we're thinking about it. And then when you get a report that the FBI is now going to look into interactions with an underage person, that's when things hit the fan. But you never really hear about until 2021 when the LA Magazine did their profile on him two weeks ago, that the investigation was closed and the two parties reconciled. They, they, the, the person in question, Ava, communicated to Adam's lawyer I quote, was not truthful about the age in my texts and communications with Ryan and repeatedly told him I was 18. Contrary to the Times article, Ryan and I both freely participated equally in texts of a sexual nature with one another. Ryan is a good human being, and my sole wish is that both of us have learned from this experience. You know, and then Adam's response to that was, I ran away from home and was estranged when I was your age, and I did a lot of things that I shouldn't have done as well. This is my entire issue with so much of how people metabolize and, and digest the issues in our criminal justice system and issues with Me Too-related offenses. They pay so much attention to this person was, you know, there was this allegation levied at this person, this person was charged with a crime, but they do not pay very much attention to, okay, when this was actually investigated further, what did it? What did the FBI find? What exactly happened? Nothing. What evidence was there anything. to substantiate this? And and so I, what, I mean, this is an endemic problem overall. People just reading the headlines and not actually seeking to understand uh, at a deeper level what went down. But I have a huge issue with people sort of throwing these allegations around and then not actually paying attention to the follow up of okay, well, what did the FBI find? Not that much, or certainly not enough to prove that he'd acted, uh, maybe he acted in an untoward way, but certainly not in a criminal one. 
Yeah, and there, there have been a, cases that have been re-reported sort of after the fact, like this L.A. Mag piece or the case of Al Franken when uh, the New Yorker, I can't remember, maybe it was Jane Mayer, um, went back and, and really investigated uh, everything that he was accused of. And, and in many ways, her reporting, I think, should have exonerated him. But it doesn't matter because once the allegation is leveled, then the punishment starts. And there are very few cases of these cases that have been re-reported where the person is found to be not culpable, where it's sort of like, okay, you're forgiven, we're sorry, never mind, come back into polite society. It's just the allegation itself is enough to to, to damn people for life. Yeah, yeah I mean, we, that's a career ender. We don't really do exonerations in yeah. the court of public opinion, and I think that's a huge problem. I'm curious, though, especially as we're a few years post some of these initial Me Too allegations surfacing, I'm wondering whether we will see more attempts to follow up on it. I, that would be the ethical and appropriate thing for journalists to do. I'm not going to say that I expect that they're going to do that, but I'm hopeful. Yeah, and so I'm mean, in terms of following right. up, right? So I think I think a good way to end everything today is like talking about like what redemption looks like for a person in this situation. Uh, Katie mentioned something I thought was was important to note, which is whether or not relationships and power and using one another goes both ways. And I think it is unquestionable that when you are someone like Ryan Adams, Grammy nominations and a lot of power, connections to Capitol Records, um, you know, his manager at the time was the guy who managed the Foo Fighters. Like, he was a big, big deal. When he reaches out to you in your DMs and is going to, like, you know, offer you, like, recording time and maybe take you on a tour, that is an asserting of your ability to to help people, but then there's going to be an exchange. And, and we know what the exchange was in many cases, that he wanted to talk, uh, he wanted to talk sex, and then he wanted to get involved um, while he was married to Mandy Moore. But then you go back to Mandy Moore, and the New York Times says it explicitly in their coverage that when she was coming out of her time as a kind of a teeny bop pop star, she was looking for credibility. She was looking for someone to help her get serious as a musician. And then she met Ryan Adams. <laughs> and then a whirlwind romance ensues, and they end up married. And I just read all of that, and I go, okay, is it possible that in a marriage, two people enter into a thing wanting something from each other that they're not getting? And I know people do it all the time. You enter into a relationship for a reason, and then it ends up not being real. It ends up being elusive. And then people get angry. Yeah, the part of this that I find really interesting is that the Times seem to be wanting to establish more. They they were talking a little bit about the age difference between Moore and Adams, which is about a decade. But I think it's fascinating, this idea of like so many artists tried to do that transition, like Miley Cyrus did that transition, right? From the teeny bopper type person to wanting to be taken seriously as an artist, as an adult, um, as somebody with sort of their own creative value and output. And so I think, I don't know, I would need to know more about how Adams and Moore met and how the relationship commenced to sort of understand or even begin to speculate about what her intentions were going into it. But I think you're totally right. People expect something from relationships. I think, I think, and and the Times correctly points this out, is that allegedly he did something along the same lines, which is they're, yeah. they're talking about that theme, right? That he saw her perform and then he started talking about, man, if only I could record you, you know, you'd sound really great if I were working with you and all that stuff. Shortly after she ended up parting ways with her manager and kind of gave Ryan a lot of control of her career, which then went nowhere. And the Times basically takes that and goes, okay, he, st- he stifled her career and smothered it. He didn't allow her to go do anything. 
And I kind of go back to agency there and go, Mandy Moore had two, one platinum, two gold albums at that point as a teen star. She could have done anything. You can't tell Mandy Moore to not go into a studio and record. Does he really have the power to stifle his own wife's career? I question whether or not that's true. I think this is why they hit the the note of his manipulative behavior and psychological abuse so heavily as one of the threads that connected all of these stories. I think they were attempting to make the case that Mandy Moore was so... Uh, you know, she'd been beaten down. She was downtrodden because of the degree to which he didn't support her music career. And that was why she ultimately didn't uh, go very many places with it during the time when they were married. So I think they're trying to uh, draw that connection. Right. This is not like a Britney Spears situation where, you know, he's her conservator and has actual legal power over her. And, uh, and of course, relationships, especially marriages, are incredibly complex, and there was probably lots going on behind the scenes that we're not aware of. But all all relationships are nego- are negotiation. Uh, most of us are just lucky enough not to have our, our negotiations put in the New York Times. Yeah, no, I mean, absolutely. And the, the there's- part that I find really distasteful about some of this is that in some of the follow-up coverage, like in the LA Mag article, Adams talks about how they he thought they'd put a lot of the, uh, he thought they'd resolved a lot of the components of their their divorce and sort of resolved some of the bad blood between them during the time when they were actually getting divorced. So he felt a little bit, uh, understandably, uncomfortable with more re-airing these grievances, especially in front of their friends and family. And he was uh, supportive of her new, her new heading towards a new marriage, yeah. coincidentally with the lead singer of a very popular band, The Dawes. I don't know. What did you make <laughs> of that, Stephen? I found that to be pretty uncomfortable because there's a certain amount of like, we all, I mean, we're all, all three of us are married. We all know people who've gotten divorced. There's a certain amount of like when friends get divorced. Uh, I don't know, man. It's kind of a fool's errand oftentimes to try to figure out which side to believe. There's a lot of dirty laundry and I don't really want it aired near me oftentimes. Yeah, I, I, I'm i very uncomfortable with this element of the story. And there again, there are elements of this story that I think are absolutely damning and true. I think the, the plank of the story that has the most legs is that he reaches out to young female musicians pretends he's going to help them and then wants to be in a relationship. I think that that pretty much pans out. It's the marriage part of it that I think they try to layer in this grievance factor from an ex-wife whose career went nowhere because it appears that she didn't go out there and record albums because he wasn't super supportive in the way that she would like. Um, You don't really know what to do with that. You don't know what goes on behind closed doors. What we do know is that... uh, that she wasn't aware previously of his uh, infidelity throughout the marriage until the Times told her. <laughs> and then she unloaded in, in their story and gave them pretty much everything that they needed to tie together a pattern of behavior. And I think all, all you can do responsibly is go, I don't know. I, I don't know what went on here, but I'm not going to factor it into my assessment of somebody's reputation uh, when you know that there are axes being ground on each side. Yeah. Katie? I find yeah. it interesting that that Me Too has made what maybe 10 years ago or 15 years ago or five years ago really tabloid fodder into legitimate mm. news. Um, you know, man cheats on his wife, unless it's a poly- – like not even man, like rock star cheats on his wife, that probably would not have made the pages of the New York Times if not for this movement. And I think that's their point. I, I think the writers of this story would say, but that's the point. These things can't go unquestioned. These are systems where these things happen perpetually and they're encouraged to happen. Well, and from the journalistic sure, standpoint- Sure, but they're, they're also people. 
Yeah. <laughs> I think from the journalistic standpoint, I mean, the Times sort of tells on themselves a little bit when, you know, they quote Moore saying music was a point of control for him. I think the use of the Moore grievance in this overall piece <clears throat> really has to do with them trying to make the case that he was manipulative. He was psychologically abusive. He was controlling to these women. And I think they see more. I think they're trying to communicate with that story. Even in the context of a marriage, a marriage, you know, purportedly where where somebody feels very deeply for their wife, it's not just a fling. Music was a point of control for him in that relationship too, and that's the common thread through all of them. But I, 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 uh, I think as a journalist, I would be uh, uncomfortable with including some of that because to me, it doesn't rise anywhere near the level of. Um, it's not a criminal allegation. It's really difficult to figure out what spurned uh, ex-spouses. Uh, what actually went on. A lot of them just have so much, um, they have so many grievances that I would really not want to wade into that territory. Yeah, and, and they pretty much, and, and the LA Times or LA Magazine points out, I think rightly, that in many of the pieces of coverage after the Times reported it, um, they allude to emotional abuse throughout the marriage. And they only ever cite one example, was that Ryan allegedly said, you're not a real musician because you don't play an instrument. And this gets all the play over and over and over again. <laughs> that and means I, they don't have good enough quotes to be yeah, able to substantiate the rest I, of it. <laughs> I'm just going, that's, that's the thing that you rely on as the evidence. That's just not good enough, and it's not good enough to establish the pattern for destroying a person, which the title of the LA Magazine piece is Ryan Adams, quote, I felt like they are asking me to die, which is kind of why I wanted to do this episode at all, because I, I, I feel for people who go through these kinds of campaigns, because I, I want to see what the end is. I want to see if they come out on the other side. And I know, and I believe strongly that the people who engage in these kind of like cancel behaviors, you know, pariah from society sort of deals, they do just want you to just go off and die. They don't want to see or hear from you again. They want you to turn in all of your belongings and not have a life. Um, that's the only thing that they want from you. And I, I want pe to see people search for redemption and maybe even find it. Yeah, uh, we might be waiting a long time for that. Although there is, you know, <laughs> I there are a wealth of stories that really could be relit litigated and could be reported on. Um, I'm, I'm working on one now. I won't, uh, I won't say the name of the, of the alleged perpetrator in this, but I think for reporters who are interested single? in this sort of thing, <laughs> <laughs> everything, no, all of the allegations are true. They're all true. Okay. <laughs> all true. I think it's a really interesting, uh, a really interesting line of line of reporting. And I, and I hope more people start, start to look into these stories and, um, you know, as somebody who has, who has done a lot of reporting on sort of cancel culture gone wrong, I have to sort of check myself and make sure that I'm not being too skeptical of allegations. Yeah. Um, because once you've reported on so many allegations that turn out to be false, you, you it, it is very possible to sort of have a knee jerk. I don't believe you uh, stance. And so it's, that's something that, that I need Which to Which is something I feel here. I, I've, I've struggled yeah. with that here throughout because I, I deal with the same sort of knee jerk skepticism that you do. Uh, I think it is an asset, but it also can be a liability. Like rereading the New York times story this morning before doing this, I was like, you know what? <laughs> Clearly, this happened with a lot of young 20-something musicians that he mm -hmm. would reach out and establish this pattern. And Phoebe Bridgers is sort of like the chief example. But it kind of at the end, it goes back to 
who is destroyed here and who like has their careers ended. Phoebe Bridgers has gone on to massive success despite interactions with Ryan that were completely sour. And the Times sort of makes this argument that, you know, what about all the people who maybe their careers never picked up? They did, they put down their guitar after uh, being in a relationship with Ryan and, and seeing that toxicity. What's the price there? I don't know. The thing I really struggle with well, this, with the knee-jerk reaction stuff, is that I think it's fair for people to have their disgust reactions, their disgust uh, triggered by stuff like this. I mean, we're talking about a relationship between a 40-year-old and a 15-year-old where he had pet names for her body parts, Um, you know, where he's sexting her and nude on Skype with her. I think it's fair for people to feel incredibly uncomfortable with that type of behavior. The thing that really, really bothers me with so many of these stories, though, and I feel like we encountered this a little bit with the Louis C.K. story, is it feels like we're saying that people cannot have a career in public life or a career that makes them vast sums of money if they're scumbags. That's not historically the standard that we've used. And I personally am not in favor of that standard. I think it would be great if everybody adhered to my sense of morality and if everybody were an upstanding person. But that's often like that's not how that works. That's not how this particular world works. I mean, we have allegations of this guy going back, you know, 10, 15, 20 years, he was like supplying heroin to the strokes and like leading all these like fellow musicians down this junky yeah. rabbit hole. Like it's well established that this industry is one rife with all kinds of misbehavior and debauchery and dumb decision making. And he was instrumental in, in a lot of this. He, we knew this about him. I don't think that that means his musical output is worth nothing. Yeah, I agree with that. I mean, it's not a, it's not at all a surprise that artists, especially successful ones, are going to sometimes be narcissistic and be and have bad behavior. Um, maybe we should expect better of them. But also, there's also this, you know, the changing rules and norms, people are being punished for things that weren't that weren't actually problematic at the time they were doing. I don't think texting with a 15 year old falls into this category um, that was going to be problematic for uh, for for many of the a whole host for, of reasons. You know, but, <laughs> I yeah, do think for sure, the, for sure. the Bridgers allegation is an important one. Yeah, I mean, well, the part of the Bridgers story involves, you know, so he gets involved with Bridgers. They have a several weeks long fling in, uh, what was it? I want to be specific here. Uh, 2014, he invites her at age 20 to come to his studio and record. Uh, they record an EP. It's called The Killer EP. It's very, very, very good. Um, she does a song with Noah Gunderson that just blows the mind and everyone should check it out. But then the claim is that he then sort of like after the relationship went sour, smothered both the EP and tried to like kill any of her success while also really gaslighting her throughout the process. Um, three years later, that EP has come out. She is going on tour with him, traveling the country. I went to one of their tour dates in Richmond and saw them both play together and do a duet. It was lovely. Obviously, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, but she claims there was an incident uh, in uh, the first tour date of that tour that they did together in 2017, where she was asked up to, to bring up something to his hotel room, and he was completely nude when she got up there. And, and this was after they'd yeah. had a relationship and then broken up? Is that correct? correct? After, okay. after the relationship, after the putting it on ice, and after the alleged harassment, gaslighting, yeah. emotional abuse that she okay. kind of went through, went on tour of them. And then she went up to his hotel room to give him something, was nude. And this doesn't get asked for any more details until the LA Mag story goes and talks to people around Adams at that time and just goes like, does that sound right to you? And one of the accounts is from his female roadies 
um, who wanted to not be named in the story. And I think there's two of them that both yeah. sort of independently corroborated. And they said two things. They said one, he's a really incredibly uh, hates and loathes his own body. And that seems odd that he would do that. I, I don't know whether or not that's true, but that's important to consider that if a guy is like insecure with his, his own nudity, that they would actually do that. Maybe or maybe not. Part two is that they're like, ever since he got Meniere's disease, which is this inner ear degenerative disease that he got sometime around 2015, um, you have complete spats of bad memory, memory loss and fuzziness, not knowing where you are, just a total brain fog. This is something that you can look up medically. They're like, sometimes when he has an attack, he's just totally whacked out. And Again, you don't want to just take that and like paper it over as like, well, then that's the explanation. But that should be talked about. That should be considered. And I'm, I'm surprised that that wasn't in the initial New York Times claim that this is something that could be considered um, in any of these instances. I mean, there's also all kinds of weird boyfriend behavior from that surfaced from his relationship with Bridgers, him even going so far as to talk about marriage within like a week of them starting their fling just some like clear red flags of like this guy's unwell uh which i understand it's harder to see that at age 20 it's harder to see that if you're sort of blinded by this person's success and you see them as somebody who can be instrumental in helping your career get off the ground but there's also a component to this which is like i don't know man like there is some amount of i believe women should uh be treated like like adult women should be treated like adult women and if if i encounter those types of uh red flags with a dude, I think the answer would be, uh-huh, this is coming on a little bit strong. This is too fast. This is too much. I. It seems like there's more to poke at with that relationship. And the fact of the matter is we just don't know very much about it. The New York Times didn't tell us that much about it. The LA Magazine piece certainly sheds more light on it. But I'm not inclined to say that this is uh, particularly abusive behavior from Adams. It's weird behavior. It's perhaps extremely clingy and emotionally needy. But it definitely doesn't seep, it doesn't veer into the criminal category, not one bit. And nobody makes that allegation, but I think that's really important to suss out here. So, Katie, I want to ask you about the road to redemption. And then let's kind of like talk about what should be next for someone who is in this position. Um, I think a big and important part of your own story, the story of Blocked and Reported, is when certain doors in the mainstream are kicked closed on you for having heterodox opinions or you fall out of grace for right or wrong reasons. What comes next and what does it mean to actually be redeemed? In the LA Magazine story, one of his friends who, who still has stayed close to Ryan says he's searching for some redemption right now. I don't know what that means for someone like him because I think he wants it to be having everything be the way that it was rather than trying to make things right. What do you think? Yeah, I think you're probably right about that. Things are not going to go back to the way that they were for Ryan Adams. But you can see people can have sex. I'm sorry. <laughs> they can. can. Verify. Um, Some yeah, people. Slip there. <laughs> That's the problem. Um, can have success after after public shaming like this. Louis C.K. just uh, just did a show at Where Madison Square Garden that was that was uh, panned by much of the media, but apparently uh, apparently was actually quite good for the audience. Apparently loved it. Um, but he's taken himself out of the mainstream. Um, he does un- he did this before his before mm. the allegations against him. But like he sells direct to to customers from his website. Ryan Adams could do something like that. Yeah. I become more of an independent. Yeah. 
I think it's really interesting. So I've been going, I live in New York and I've been going to the comedy cellar lately and a measure that they've put in place, I think in the last two years is when you enter, you have to, everybody in the group has to turn off their phones or put them in airplane mode. And then they put them in a sealed bag and they give you back the bag. But it's this really interesting sort of cancel culture era measure of like, nope, you're not allowed to record. We don't know who's going to be on the stage tonight. We don't know whether it's going to be Colin Quinn or Louis CK or somebody who's more up and coming, but like, we're not going to do this thing where we all become these little tattletale narc snitches and record a video and then put it on Twitter and then get everybody in trouble. And I think that's fascinating. I'm curious about whether we'll see more stuff like that of put the phone in the the bag and you can't take it out for the duration of the show or like what Louis C.K. is doing, where it's like a direct to consumer sort of allowing his fans to continue to go to shows uh, of his versus having these sort of like, it seems like he's sort of trying to stay a little bit out of the media frenzy in the spotlight because he knows he's not going to be received well. Yeah, and Adams has said numerous times, he's made remarks about, I just want my career back and all this kind of stuff about being canceled. And I I really do sympathize. Like I I would like to see people be open to the idea of redemptive arcs and forgiveness. But I think there is a huge cultural confusion between redemption and forgiveness. Searching for redemption does not mean that the New York Times Times gives you the, the seal of approval to continue. Searching for redemption does not mean that Phoebe Bridgers or Mandy Moore tweet out to you, we accept your apology. Uh, you apologize. You acknowledge that you did the things that you actually did do. Instead which, of denying them through your lawyer. <laughs> yeah, yeah, every every Brian Adams statement is a denial through the lawyer that either does not remember what happened or these things never happened. And I, I'm sorry, but I think at some point you, you've got to say, I did these things. I apologize. I'm going to move forward. I hope people will come with me. Redemption is about putting things back into the world to correct for the wrong things that you put into the world that make things better. Um, I don't know if that is actually trying to help some young musicians jumpstart their careers without strings attached, that that's a literal way you would redeem the debt that you caused in that area. But just going out there and playing again, that's not redemption. That's just your career coming back. There is also the question, though, that I think people often fail to grapple with with this entire cancel culture which is that sometimes people do ask for forgiveness. Obviously, Ryan Adams has not. But sometimes they do apologize and they ask for forgiveness. And then people continue to withhold it from them, which sure. is fine. It's their prerogative, especially those who have been harmed by him. It's their prerogative to decide whether they're ready to accept that. But I can understand why people feel as though they can spin their wheels and they can apologize all they want, but that's not going to actually rehabilitate their image in the slightest. That said, it's still the right thing to do. But I can understand why people sort of see this as a complicated calculus of like they don't know whether they'll actually get any sort of forgiveness. Because also the general public, if they're not huge Ryan Adams fans, they don't really have an incentive to forgive him. It doesn't matter that much <laughs> to them. It's easy to get outraged and to spin your wheels over the initial thing, but it's a lot harder to say to to revamp your mind and to say, oh, actually, that guy that I wrote off as Ryan Adams bad, I labeled him in the bad category in my mind. Actually, maybe he's fine. Mm. Yeah, I, I just want to see, I think, people come to a better understanding between cancel culture and still like you you sometimes when you make mistakes you're still going to lose things there are consequences there are yeah. there, you, there are areas where there are going to be consequences to your mistakes the question is whether or not you're able to move past them and then people are willing to let you i think Katie like you see a whole lot people go after people to try to make it impossible for you to ever have a second chapter of your story 
Right. And right now, oftentimes what we found in our reporting is that there's some sort of allegation. Maybe it's uh, being a sex pest or something like that or something racial. And there, it becomes public. And this allegation is whether it's true or not is used to oust someone who might be unpopular at an office for other reasons. Maybe there's conflict, maybe a person has a difficult personality, or a person uh, has the wrong politics within it, within an institution. This specifically happens in, in media. Um, and you can sort of use off, use the, the guise of social justice to, to make what are essentially office politics issues, um, you know, big national stories and get people ousted from their jobs. Obviously, this isn't the, this isn't true in every case, but we've seen a number of cases where where it does appear to be. Well, let's the let's case. talk about one that does deserve to be the case, um, and, and hard pivot over to <laughs> Governor Cuomo, uh, who I suppose has packed his things and headed for the exits uh, in New York. Um, Liz, you follow this story much closer than I have. I think we've all sort of seen just off to the side, like all right, so people came out against Cuomo in his office that he's. Handsy, kisses a lot, gropes people, right? And then he denies these things and wants an investigation done. An investigation is done. The investigation is damning. And then he heads for the exits. Um, could you give the recap of this story as you have seen it? Because you did a piece on it earlier this week for reasons. Absolutely. Um, I mean, these allegations really began to surface in the mainstream media with Lindsay Boylan, uh, who worked as a fairly senior aide in Cuomo's office and alleged that he uh, attempted to kiss her uh, or no, he did. He did kiss her. It was unwanted. Um, she was definitely not in any way uh, wanting to engage in this type of relationship with him. He kept making these sort of sexual passes at her. The interesting thing about this story and Boylan coming forward is that at the time she was running for um, Manhattan Borough President. So she was seeking a career in local politics after her tenure in the governor's office. So I think that's something that some Cuomo insiders and New York politics watchers were able to use to discredit her to a degree. But that was the first story that emerged. Then we have, what, 10 more? So we have nine different allegations overall of inappropriate behavior from employees and people who worked with him in the governor's mansion. And we have two other allegations that he was inappropriate um, and, you know, sexually uh, engaging in sexual misconduct outside of work with non-employees. It's it's really interesting to go through the entire laundry list of stuff because None of the behavior is as egregious as, um, you know, rape or some of the really horrible things that we've absolutely seen people in positions of power do to others. There's lots of groping. There's uh, one situation where he sticks his hand underneath a woman's shirt mm -hmm. and like grabs her breast. Uh, there's some accounts of unwanted kissing. There's some comments about uh, how two employees were going to be going on a trip together and he calls them the mingle mamas asking if they're single and ready to mingle. Just stuff like that that's really inappropriate. But the whole New York Times investigation into all of this behavior does do a really good job of painting a picture of a pattern of like, this is not a guy you want to work for. And this is so unbecoming of somebody who's the governor of a state of millions and millions of people where we really need him to be, to keep his eye on the ball, to be a competent right. and ethical leader during a time I, of I enormous Katie, crisis. Katie mentioned like the line moving element and the line moving element was what Cuomo used as his, his alibi. Yeah, <laughs> He was like, well, the line has just moved <laughs> so I'm Italian, fast. I'm handsy. And it's like, yeah. that's not how does, that Does goes. that have any merit, the Italian part of it? Because I actually, I had heard that, right? And so I, obviously this does not apply to reaching up someone's shirt, right? And grabbing them. But like, I mean, my husband's Italian. 
Italian and I see all kinds no, of sexual but, behavior. No, but there's there was like a lot of they put out in his defenses like the key, the the yeah. cheek kissing thing that they always do, and they're just like a little bit physical. And I I don't want to stereotype our good Italian friends, but like, is there any merit to that, or is that it's, them okay. using them? The like a tiny bit. Like my in-laws of their Italian New Yorkers, like they are my mother-in-laws. Like yeah, there's kissing, <laughs> you know, kiss on the cheek, but there's not groping, you know. There's a big difference. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's he also uh, at one point during a press conference alleged that he was a victim of cancel culture. He said that cancel culture was coming for him. But I think so it's important. That's what I hate about this, though. Katie, that has to drive you insane that like cancel culture yeah. is, is used by politicians now as their cover, because I hate that. Yeah, it does drive me insane because it makes me look bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think I, my my take on the coma, uh, the coma thing is is basically whatever he did is not as bad. Whatever he did in sort of the sex pest realm, it's not as bad as what he did with nursing homes. And the fact that you can send people to their deaths, to their literal deaths, is not going to get you run out of office. But uh, being handsy is, says a lot about the moment that we're in right now. And I don't think what it says is particularly good. Well, to circle back to that, I mean, I did some reporting for Reason, um, and a whole bunch of people in the conservative media have been doing a great job of this. Janice Dean comes to mind and Carol Markowitz. I mean, he issued this directive on March 25th, 2020, right as coronavirus was hitting New York, basically saying that uh, residential homes for elderly adults did not have to test people being uh, admitted out of hospitals or being released from hospitals. They didn't have to test them upon entry into the nursing homes. So they weren't really doing good testing. They weren't doing good containment measures. And this was part of what allowed COVID to spread like wildfire in nursing homes, killing ultimately 15,000 uh, elderly people. And the craziest part about all of this um, is that then the Cuomo administration tried to cover this up. They underreported to the tune of 4,000 or 5,000 deaths. So then New York's Attorney General Letitia James investigates this and is like, whoa, that's not acceptable. Their entire excuse for this, once again, their excuses were terrible. Uh, their, their excuse for this is that they didn't want to properly report the numbers because they were worried about an investigation by the Trump DOJ. I'm sorry, but you don't get to just extra legally, unilaterally decide that you're going to misreport the numbers because you don't like who the president is and the party that's the, the party that's in charge. That's yeah. completely unacceptable. They should have been this should have been much more of a problem than it was. And it's really astonishing that this is what ultimately led to Cuomo resigning, that the the handsiness and the groping and the grabbing. Yeah, and I, I think Katie's frustration that she shared about like what actually pushes this person out the door. I think that that's something that we should all pause and consider because the 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 thing about the retirement homes was not a Fox News fantasy. This was a real thing that happened. Um, tons and tons of people lost their loved ones in those retirement homes as a as a result of mismanagement at the highest level and then an effort to cover it up. Um, real lives actually lost as a result of power being improperly wielded. And it's a part of an entire pattern of behavior of that Cuomo engaged in that was really just so screwed up. You see him doing the exact same thing for adults with intellectual disabilities and residential homes for them. I spoke to some of the family members uh, of people who died as a result. And, you know, one one man who's based in North Carolina who had two family members die in a residential facility said, I just wish I brought them back home to North Carolina. I wish I'd taken them out of the state of New York. That's a really, really damning indictment of Cuomo's leadership. Cuomo also wrote a book during all of this uh, and promoted it. And it was what, a $3 million or $4 million book maybe deal? Katie, maybe Katie and Jesse will have him on the pod to talk about his, his <laughs> yeah. book. <laughs> yeah, he's, uh, he's going to leave the governor's mansion and start a substack. <laughs> a new substack letter from Andrew Cuomo. Uh, oh, my God. 
I don't want it. Um, y'all, this has been um, enlightening. I appreciate you navigating this conversation. Two tough topics with me today. Um, Katie Herzog, co-host of Blocked and Reported Podcast. How can folks um, kind of stay in touch with you, support your work? Um, the podcast is funded through listeners on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash blocked and reported. The podcast is also for free on, uh, available for free on all, all the regular podcast networks. And I'm on Twitter at Kitty Perzog. Liz, how can people support your work and keep in touch? Um, I am at Reason Magazine. Uh, you can look me up pretty easily. My name is Liz Wolf, uh, and I'm also on Twitter. Uh, so please send me as much hate mail as you can possibly muster. All right, everybody, be sure to check them out. Even when the news of the day is bleak, or especially when it's bleak, we like to shine a light on some positive things happening around the world, either in our own corners of life or literally just in the news. Liz, what's good for you these days? Well, it was a little bit difficult to come up with this, uh, given all the news from Afghanistan that surfaced this week. Um, But I, even as I've been paying a lot of attention to the rise in Delta variant-related COVID cases, I've been quite heartened by the fact that we're actually uh, in the U.S. coming up with a pretty good system for deploying booster shots. It seems like this will be something that will be able to be rolled out to people who are especially medically There was news vulnerable. this morning about booster exactly. shots. Yeah. And them being recommended for elderly people. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, I mean, I've been beating this drum for the duration of the COVID pandemic, and I'm not going to stop now. This is something where for people like all of us, we're probably at extremely low risk of being hospitalized or dying. But for older people among us, that's not the case. Uh, and so I'm really, really excited that we are making great strides toward giving older people and more vulnerable people booster shots uh, and developing a sort of regiment to do that. So I think uh, the, I mean, props to Big Pharma in this specific uh, case. Like I'm a huge fan of the fact that we have access to vaccines uh, on a much faster timeline than we ever thought possible. I want my third jab, my third Moderna. I just I'm... want another sticker. I love stickers. <laughs> just here for the sticker. Uh, Katie, anything good on your world today? Well, yeah, as a member of the Taliban, things could really be, not be better in my world. What's, um, what are their pronouns? No. Do you know? Is it Talibexin, Taliban? How should we refer to Talibai. them? Taliban. I think... I think it's he, him. I think all of his pronouns are he, him. Um, Now, uh, there's some good news in in my corner of the world. I I live up here in Seattle near the Canadian border, which is finally open and just reopened again for the the, uh, first time in a year. So so I can go up to Vancouver and get some some good Asian food um, and people who live near the border and have been really struggling with with getting to work or seeing their families um, can can finally reunite. So we'll see how long the border stays open. But for now, this is this is good news. When cancel culture finally comes for your citizenship status here in the United States. There's always I'm going to break a little bit of my, my usual. And uh, I do want to speak kind of directly to the Afghanistan thing, because despite the almost universal media narrative and bipartisan scorn for scenes coming out of Afghanistan, I think it is unquestionably good news that President Biden did not cave to pressure from all sides, Democrats, Republicans, Lockheed Martin lobbyists, and corporate media officials and retired generals turned consultants to keep U.S. soldiers in Afghanistan a single minute longer. Every action, every action has a consequence, and there are truly horrific consequences playing out right now. But in 20 years of occupying Afghanistan, 
Close to 240,000 people have been killed there in the sands. 71,000 of these are civilian casualties, men, women, and children. And I find it just disgusting that our media groans about the dishonor of the hasty withdrawal, which dishonorable it may have been, but they don't call it dishonorable that we've turned Afghanistan into the third largest generator of refugees and displaced families in the world because something bad, evil, and unfair happened to us 20 years ago. And according to John Kerry, like this guy, you know, former Secretary of State, he says it was all success because now they have cell phones uh, in every person's hand and more TV stations than ever, all before we invaded. Leaving Afghanistan is good news um, that doesn't feel good because it shouldn't feel good. And we're going to go deeper on that next week. Our guests are going to be Fiona Harrigan of Reason and Young Voices, as well as Professor Abigail Hall Blanco of Bellarmine University. She's also the author of a new book, Manufacturing Militarism. We have new episodes every Thursday, so do the thing and hit subscribe. Thank you for watching, listening, and sharing the show with all of your people. And as always, keep asking why, stay out of line, and be a bug in the system. Liz, Katie, thank you both for the conversation today. Thanks, Stephen. Yeah, thank you.